Hey everyone, my guest today is Maya Hu Chan, who is an internationally recognized keynote speaker, best-selling author, and master certified executive coach. She specializes in global leadership, cross-cultural management, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her latest book, Saving Face, How to Preserve Dignity and Build Trust, is an Amazon number one bestseller. Um, and then her book, Global Leadership, The Next Generation, was a Harvard Business School working knowledge book. She's a contributing author of 14 books and, and columns for uh, inc.com. Uh, Maya was born and raised in Taiwan, and she's currently living in San Diego, California. Uh, she's fluent in Mandarin, Chinese, and English. Uh, and she's earned her master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania uh, and a BA from National Shengqi University in Taiwan. Hope, I hope I didn't butcher the pronunciation there. That was um, pretty close. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, my, my, it's a pleasure to have you and really excited for our conversation today. Thank you, Asad. Thank you for having me today. Yeah. So I'd love to go deeper on this idea of face. Um, you know, in your, at the beginning of your book, you actually challenge your readers to go beyond a superficial understanding of, of face. Uh, and I'd love for you to give our listeners sort of an understanding of how you see face. Yes, absolutely. So um, that's my latest book called Saving Face, How to Preserve Dignity and Build Trust. Why did I write this book, right? And, and many people ask me this question. And I have um, coached and worked with leaders around the world for over 25 years. And I have learned a great deal about their successes and their also challenges. And you know, as a leader, you can experience so many challenges such as um, you know, attrition, turnover, burned out, um, you know, conflicts and uh, performance issues, so on and so forth. And um, as I coach them intimately for a long period of time that I realized that the, one of the most consistent characteristics that in nearly all of those challenges is boiled down is how people deal with each other. How do people interact with each other and then how they feel about each other. And a lot of challenges really is, is, uh, is, the, is, is coming from that particular root cause. So I have shared with them a concept that resonates with leaders at all levels across different cultures around the world. And this, is, this concept is so essential to their leadership, but it's also sometimes counterintuitive sometimes, and it's the concept of face. So what is face? Okay. Face represents one's self-esteem, self-worth, identity, reputation, status, pride, and dignity. All of that, right? So face really is how you see yourself and also how other people see you. It's inside and out. Face is a universal concept beyond its origin in Asia. Now it speaks to a deeper human need for dignity and acceptance. And also the way that we grant dignity to, to one another. So recently I had a, a really interesting experience, um, not work related, okay, as I, I wanted to share that with you because as I was thinking about it just over the weekend, you know, I'm a new, I'm a beginner. Uh, of learning how to play pickleball. 
Okay. <laughs> and as you know, that is a very popular sport. It just started recently in recent years. And then it just becomes so popular that a lot of people are playing and learning how to play. It's some, it's, it's a sport that's between kind of, it's, if you describe it, it's between tennis and ping pong. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, so I have never played racket sports in my life. Okay. I, um, so I, I'm a total beginner to this. I started learning. I took some lessons and then I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to the, the, the club and then just do the open play. Just play with other people that uh, randomly and just have fun and get better at it. And I noticed that as I started playing that obviously I'm a beginner. So I, I, I lose most of the time. I rarely win the games. So as I play, the other people watch me play. And then, so we would change partners. And then I would go up to people and say, do you want to play? And then recently, several times, people came, they, they, they heard me, my question. And then they, they either say no, Mm. or they said they'd say nothing they just ignore my question ouch ouch and then I was like what was that all about I, I thought this is just open play we're just playing this is not not a career this is nothing you know this is just a game right we're all here to practice so I start over I, at first I thought okay maybe they didn't hear me then I will ask again and then again, I got some responses. They just don't, didn't, didn't answer or ignore me or say no. And, but sometimes people say, oh yeah, let's play, let's play. So recently I actually started playing with someone and, um, um, I, and I was becoming more and more self-conscious. And then I start feeling like I'm being judged and evaluated and, 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 and kind of, you know, uh, excluded in some, some way. So I asked this gentleman that he, he agreed to be my partner. I said to him, I said, hey, Mark, I said, hey, you know, you don't know me. I'm a, big, I'm a beginner. So are you sure you want to be my partner? I mean, if you, if you don't mind losing, then let's play. <laughs> and I said it semi-jokingly, but then... He didn't know me and he, he thought about it for a second about what I said. And then he looked at me, he said, you know, we're all beginners at some point. Let's play. And then so throughout the whole game, yes, sure enough, I was, I couldn't hit the ball. I missed, you know, I don't know how to score. And then he continued to coach me. And then when I did hear something good and by accident, he would say, good job, good job. All of a sudden, I just feel like, okay. I can do this, right? Makes such a big difference. So why did I tell you the story, right? As, as I start thinking about it, and then, you know, I really was feeling kind of down being rejected so many times by other players that I don't even know. Then I realized that this is a small picture of sort of um, a slice of life that can, this happening everywhere in the world, in the workplace that people are feeling sometimes excluded or rejected. And, um, and then simply because sometimes that they could be new to something or perhaps that they're, they're, they're not actually being part of the, the in-group. And so um, it's, it has a lot to do with what I've been teaching and coaching people on. And then now I am actually 
in this game and learning about what it feels like to be an outsider. That's a big aha moment to me. So going back to losing face, and that's a big part of it. It's that when people lose face, they feel ashamed. They feel embarrassed. And then sometimes they feel humiliated. And this can impact how they show up in the world and then how they perform their jobs. And this is just a game for, for most people. But then think about if this is a, my career depend on it and how devastating that must be. And so I think that that comes back to, I really wanted to write about this concept of, about face because I think that everybody at some point can experience that. Doesn't matter how successful you are, that when you are a beginner of something or you feel like if you're an outsider, that that's real to, to you. And what can we do to create a more inclusive and, and compassionate and empathetic environment for everybody to thrive. So that's a long way to answer your question, but I just thought I want to share with you my, my pickable story. <laughs> no, that, that, that was great. And similarly, you know, I we talked a little bit before this interview, like I, I dance and I, and you know, you, you ask people to dance and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no. So it's a very, it is a very universal feeling, right? Uh, and so, and so for, for audience members who are still like new to this idea, would you say that um, like, there was a loss of face when uh, like, you know, you asked someone to play with you and, and they turned you down. Is that, is, is that sort of the, the place where you would say you lost face? You know, I think it's, um, it's not just uh, the, the being turned down. I think, you know, if you, if you think about the dynamic, like this is a human interaction, right? That um, you when others turn you down saying no, and you, you're, you, after a while, you start to reflect on what's going on. Why did they not want to play with me? You know, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm a five-year-old again, mm. right? And, uh, and I started to doubt my, my uh, ability to really play the game. Mm. And I started to doubt about, you know, can I really do this? Or is there something wrong with me? And I think that in, in, a, in a real world that, you know, in a workplace, you know, this can happen to people who are, who could be in a underserved community, for example, that maybe the English is not their first language and, or perhaps they're a remote worker. Like today, so many of us wish we work remotely and they feel excluded sometimes because they're not based in the headquarter. Sometimes it could be that they're more introvert in their personality, they're, they're not always speaking up in the, in the work situation. Um, it could be women, it could be minority, it could be um, LGBTQ communities or people with certain disabilities that many of us can experience that. And so I think this is something that um, we can all be more aware of um, at, at any point that we can all be beginners and or we can all be outsiders uh, to certain groups. There's definitely an element of, or it sounds like there's an element of like um, insider, outsider, potentially hierarchy, like expert, non-expert. Yes. Um, share a little bit about how those dynamics play out in relationships. Uh, like in your book, you have a few other examples like parent, child, uh, yeah. customer, client, and sales, manager, employee. So like share a little bit about how some of these dynamics can become maybe more complex than they might really seem. Uh, on the surface? 
Right. Well, let me share with the true story um, that my client shared with me. So, you know, the, the names that I'm using actually not real names because I want to protect confidentiality, of course. Um, so let's just call him Steve. So Steve is an American executive. Um, he works at a global company. And I am coaching one of his direct reports. His name is Kenji. Kenji is a senior leader from Japan. So on a recent call with Kenji, I could tell something was off. In fact, Kenji was very upset. So I asked him, I said, what happened, Kenji? He said, well, I just had a call with my boss, Steve. I proposed several of my ideas for a new marketing initiative. And he said I was stupid. Hmm, I was very surprised to hear that, you know, because I have worked with Steve as well. And I know him to be thoughtful, conscientious, and very respectful. So I decided to double click on that. And so I asked Kenji to elaborate a little bit more. So I asked him, what exactly did Steve say? And Kenji said, well, he said something like my idea was a no brainer, right? You know, no brainer means that I have no brain. Like I'm, I, I, I'm so humiliated. No one has ever called me stupid before, he said. Aha, so I see as soon as I heard that phrase, I knew what's going on, right? Now the situation was clear. Now, after I explained the positive connotation of no brainer to Americans, it's, you know, Kenji was so relieved and he understand that's not an insult to him. And then so we both had a good laugh about it. So let's think about this for a second. Now, do you think Kenji would have asked Steve to clarify the meaning of no brainer during the call? Of course not, right? Do you think Kenji would have shared his hurt feelings with Steve? I doubt it. Now, do you think the relationship between Steve and Kenji would have suffered because of this misunderstanding? Most likely, right? So you may ask me, well, why didn't Kenji speak up? Why didn't he say something? Well, in a culture like Japan, for example, hierarchies are very respected and employees rarely confront their managers or their superiors. And they're also very group oriented and they're socialized to maintain group harmony than direct confrontation. So um, on the other hand, Steve has never intended to insult his, his team members by using this American slang, right? But as the, leaders, uh, as the leader of the global team, he could have had greater awareness and sensitivity and adjusted his language when communicating with non-native English speakers. So this kind of miscommunication could happen to anyone who works in global business. And it could also happen to leaders who work with people from diverse backgrounds right here in the US, in a home country. Uh, so sometimes we can have a good laugh about this miscommunication, but sometimes it can have much more serious consequences. So when we think about the concept of face, right, it, it permeates all levels of social and business interactions. So when you, when you hear somebody say, it's not about the money, the real issue, it's often about face. So while the primary audience of my book are business leaders, managers, entrepreneurs, and professionals, whose work require them to interact and engage with people from very diverse backgrounds, 
But I also seek in this book to benefit anybody who wants to improve their relationship and how they relate to other people, such as how teachers relate to their students and how parents communicate with their, their children. Um, you know, how friends and neighbors talk to each other and, 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 um, and interact with each other in many other social contexts. Okay? And faith really permeates everything when, it, when you think about you know, how do we honor faith by elevating and showing respect and sensitivity towards others? And how do we avoid losing faith or causing others to lose faith? And number three is that how do we save faith for others when there's a potential situation that can cause embarrassment or uh, can cause others to feel um, uh, humiliated? And then how do we strive to preserve dignity for others and build trust? So it will be a positive win-win outcome. Yeah, and that's such a, I think, hilarious yet sadly true like example because you know English has these like weird nuances where like no-brainer if you look at the words it's totally like like you know in on face value it is kind of an insult but actually the meaning is the opposite so unless you're clued into that nuance you, you wouldn't know uh, and so I, I want to just go a little deeper into this like hierarchical relationship let's just even stick to this example of Steve and, and, and Kenji so it, it sounds like because of the hierarchy in this relationship, uh, Kenji would find it difficult to maybe raise their concerns to Steve, right? So maybe let's start with Steve, right? Uh, because he is the person higher in the hierarchy in this relationship. What is his responsibility in a situation like this? Let's just say he said this and then he realizes his mistake. Like what's, what's his responsibility? Where does he go from there? Yeah, well, good question, right? Asad, I think that for, um, for somebody like Steve, he is um, in a management position and uh, he is in a higher, higher, higher hierarchy wise that he is in a higher position. So, um, and then he's also leading a global team. So for him, um, it's very important to, to number one, to be self-aware in terms of his, his, his own cultural backgrounds and values and habits, how he shows up, what he said, what he doesn't say, and can really have an impact on the people that he work with. So the first step is really to have that self-awareness and then also to be sensitive to um, the language that he used and not assuming that everybody is going to understand what he is referring to, especially some of the very culturally specific slangs and idioms, even jokes or sarcasm that they're using that can create a misunderstanding with other people. So that's number one. Number two is uh, to, to be able to acquire knowledge about other cultures. And that requires empathy uh, to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and try to learn about um, the culture that they're coming from, and also, um, you know, that perhaps understand the frame of reference of the other person. And so then you will adjust your behaviors. That's the third step is that to be able to adapt and adjust your own behaviors and your own style uh, to work with people that's very, from a very diverse background. So, when, you know, in this case, it's Kenji is from a completely different culture. 
right? English is a second language, but this can also happen here domestically when we're working with people from a very different generations. How you communicate and work with a, a 20 year old is very different than you know, working with somebody that's 55 years old. Right. And so it, it's, it, it, you know, also, you know, it, so as a leader that you need to be able to have that kind of adaptability that in order to be truly successful in working with diverse backgrounds. It's hearing you say that it's, it's really interesting because what I'm appreciating is is like the level of maybe preparation that you or you uh, you aspire to bring to an interaction or like you work with your clients to like bring to an interaction. Um, and that philosophy I feel is very different than like Silicon Valley philosophy, which is, you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm here from, which is all about like, you know, take action, learn from your mistakes, iterate, like, you know, fail fast, like mm -hmm. make mistakes, but then like repair them. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because, you know, I, it almost seems like a slightly different philosophy in your own, where your emphasis is more on the preparation part so that, you know, mistakes mm -hmm. are minimized versus going to a situation, say the wrong thing and then have to repair it. Am I, am I reading <laughs> this correctly? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting that you um you, you made that comparison, right, Asa? And uh, I like to think about this. Often, I you know in the book I talk about um a lot of times that you know um we operate on autopilot, right? Okay, you, you know, just put yourself in the driver's seat, right? Remember, every day when you drive to work, right, you get in the car. And then you just start driving and then you don't even know what happened before you know it, you're already at the parking lot in front of your office. And uh, because we basically operate on an autopilot, we don't think, we just, we just do, right? We just jump into the situation and, and, and keep going. But then when it comes to working with people that are different from us, that we have to be really, really aware of that, get off that autopilot because then, you know, we have to really pay attention to the signs of the road. Imagine that if you're actually driving in a foreign country, right? And um, I don't know if you have that experience of driving, you know, in, a, in the UK or, you know, in, in Japan even, that you are, the, the, the people are driving on the, the opposite side of the road. And also the driver's seat is on the opposite side than here in the US. And so essentially you, you operate a car is the same way but everything is opposite. So if we are on autopilot when we're driving a car in that kind of environment and not paying attention, we're gonna have an accident very quickly, right? So it's something that to pay attention to as leaders is that we need to get off the autopilot. Yes, you're right. In a Silicon Valley cultural or in American cultural actually is that just do it, just do it. Just jump in and do it and something goes wrong, we fix it along the way. Okay. But a mature and emotionally intelligent leader is that you think before you act. Okay. Not to overanalyze, but really think about it. Think it through about my action, my words. What is the impact on other people? Okay. And uh, if you take a few seconds to really think about it, um, you can eliminate a lot of unnecessary headaches and conflicts 
with team members. And sometimes those relationships, um, once you break them, it's very hard to repair. And uh, you know, I often thought about this saying that's very old Chinese saying. Uh, it's probably three thousand years old. You know, I grew up in Taiwan, so um, I often thought about something that my this the saying is that uh, spilled water is hard to regain. And what does that mean? Is that imagine that you accidentally knock over a glass of water on the table, and the water spilled all over the floor. How hard is it to put it all back in the glass? It's nearly impossible. impossible right? Yeah, very hard. Even if you manage to put some water back into your glass, do you still want to drink it? I doubt it, right? So this saying, spilled water is hard to regain. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting, it's a very old saying, but it has so profound implication. Is that whatever we do and say, that once you've said something or done something, you just can't take it back. Okay, so it's it's really important to give it some thought and think before you act. And sometimes you can really avoid some unnecessary um, uh, challenges. Yeah, I, thought, I think that's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> and then going back to this, so we, we uh, you know, this example of Steve and Kenji, we talked about Steve's role uh, let's put ourselves in Kenji's shoes for a second. So he he's in a difficult situation where he feels like he's been insulted. Um, and obviously it's a power differential, you know. Uh, you know, hopefully in ideal Steve works with you, but say he doesn't, and you know, Kenji comes to you and said, uh, what would you advise him to do in this situation? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, so you know, as his coach that I would ask him, and in fact, I ask him, I say, what would you do differently next time? Because this time it just happened that we, we have a coaching conversation right after you had a call with Steve. So then you share that with me and then quickly we realized that that was a misunderstanding. What if you didn't have somebody like, like myself that have lived in both cultures to be able to explain that to you? Um, what would you different, do differently next time? You know, and then he thought about it. He said, you know, next time that I, I am going to step back and um, think about it. And then before I get too upset <laughs> about the situation, I'm going to look it up to see what no brainer means. And then if I can't find that, um, you know, I can't find the meaning of that um, on the internet or Google, I, I, for some reason I couldn't find the reference, then I will calmly ask my um, either Steve or another American colleague about this, okay? And so I'm not going to, because naturally sometimes when people feel in, uh, humiliated or insulted that they just wanted to um, retreat to themselves and, uh, like they wanted to, you know, a lot of times they don't share that with other people and then just feel really bad. And then this ultimately would damage their relationship. Um, and then the person who, who, who um, uh, like in this case, Steve, had no idea what he said or done that caused that kind of uh, reaction. So he said, well, next time I'm going to actually either ask people about it or I'm going to ask Steve. I'm going to do my homework before I get all excited uh, or, or excited or upset about it. And um, you know, I think I can do some homework and 
uh, 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 to uh, to improve my English as well as my cross cultural skill set. So not to make any assumptions. Yeah, uh, very difficult yet very important.、Um, yes. And so, so something you said that that's really interesting is,、uh, you know, when someone feels humiliated or dishonored or shamed, there is this natural human impulse to retreat, right, to make themselves smaller. Like you know,、um, say a little bit more about that and how you've helped people maybe like. Uh, not do that, right? In the case of Kenji, actually ask for clarification or talk to a coworker. Yes, you know,、um, this kind of situation dynamic is happening quite a lot in the workplace. That sometimes people feel that they're being、um, uh, marginalized or devalued, and、uh, um, by other people's comments or actions. And we've seen that sometimes,、um, you know. And, and there, actually, there is a there is a phrase, there is a、uh, there is a term for it. It's called microaggression. Okay, and this could happen a lot in the workplace.、Um, that you know, it could microaggression、uh, imply that that、uh, you you've done something sometimes intentionally, but most likely is unintentional to、um, have make those subtle insults to put other people down or exclude them. Uh, in the work-related situations, so this kind of actions can、um, can really very quickly make the person that's being insulted feel marginalized and、um, uh, feel like an outsider. So in in that kind of situation, that what can we do to number one recognize that as a leader, or it, it doesn't have to be a leader; it can be anyone. That in that kind of situation, to be able to recognize that and then really step up to、uh, acknowledge that hey, this is not okay, and、um, you know this could cause some misunderstanding or actually this is a, a behavior that we need to eliminate、um, so that we can build trust among our team members. So、um, now, how do if you are the person that is、um, unintentionally Know, demonstrate those kind of behaviors. What can you do? And、um, you know, number one is that you know, ask you if people recognize that and then point it out to you. Is number one, don't be defensive, right? Listen to that and、uh, try to understand their point of view, and um, um, and then reflect on. Oh wow, that could be my blind spot that I didn't mean to make the other person feel bad. For example, you told a joke that could be.、Um, Condescending to the other person, and、uh, I didn't mean it that way, but it, it certainly it probably come across as insulting. So then, if somebody pointed out to you, number one is that listen to it and、uh, thank the other person for that feedback, and、um, reflect on that, and then think about how do you want to respond to that, and、uh, and then take some action to either not do that again or apologize to the other person for、um, miscommunicating. So I think that those kind of mis-、um, uh, microaggression,、uh, it, it's very subtle. And、uh, if we notice somebody is doing that, and、uh, you know, we can all speak up and、uh, be the ally for the other person. And then if you are the person that's receive on the receiving end, that you feel that you lost face, you feel like you have not been treated with respect、um, by those kind of insensitive jokes or comments, then what can you do? 
Right. And um, so one thing that I think will be really helpful, it's something that I actually written quite a quite a bit about um, on Inc.com in my column. It's about, um, you know, call people in, not just call them out. Hmm. So when you call people out, it's almost like you're confronting them. Right. And then this often can cause um, defensiveness or conflict with the other person. But if you call somebody in um, by having a conversation with them and said, I something, for example, you can say that I'm, I, I realized that you probably didn't mean it uh, that way. But then th what you said, actually, this is how it landed with me. Mm. And then explain to them how that landed with you. Um, so you bring people in and take that personal responsibility, but then also get, give them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't, you probably, they probably didn't mean it that way, but then let me explain to you and let's have a conversation. I just want to raise that awareness. So calling people in, not just calling them out. Yeah. I love that phrase. Um, and I, I, like, I like how you, you, uh, sort of structured it as still give people the benefit of the doubt because you know it could have been unintentional but then also still sharing like okay this is the impact that your actions or words did yes yes absolutely so i said you said you said a very important word there is impact right so the intention sometimes does not equal impact they can have a positive intention because sometimes you know it just come out as it has a negative impact on the other person so um, how do you raise that awareness and then also help the other person uh, uh, learn from this experience? And so they won't do it again. Yeah, because even the earlier example, Steve's intent was actually positive to compliment. He was giving Kenji compliments saying this is a no-brainer, but you know the impact was not what he intended. Exactly, exactly. Something that struck me when I read some of the examples and case studies in your book was often when there was a conflict or challenge or miscommunication or, you know, face had been lost, there was an intermediary playing the role between two parties, like bringing them together. Sometimes it was you, sometimes it was someone else who maybe knew cultures better or had a personal relationship with one of the parties. It, it, uh, share a little bit more about that dynamic and, and, why, and, and why we see so much of it in these situations. Yeah, um, so intermediaries, play an important role in many cultures. Um, and, you know, intermediaries are usually are the go-between person, right? And they can serve as, as someone that can help diffuse or de-escalate um, some of the potential conflicts um, or can help avoid some direct confrontation. And um, also the intermediaries can also repair some broken relationship by going between those two parties and then help the other side understand where the other person's coming from, right? And they can also get helpful information um, to avoid misunderstanding and that help save face for all, everybody involved. So intermediaries are very important people in the organization um, and also even in the social setting as well. And so in a, in a for example, in a, um, country like, um, uh, say, India, or in a country like China or Japan, that relationship is very important in those cultures. And then they tend to value group harmony. 
And uh, um, so intermediaries are usually a neutral third party that are both respected and trusted by both parties. So then they can be the person in go between to help resolve some of those potential conflicts. And I think that we don't use intermediary enough here in the Western country, right? Particularly here in the US, you just kind of lay all the cards on the table, you go directly to the other person. Um, so the inter intermediary is, it's really an important role, I think that um, to, um, to help, to help um, hopefully de-escalate some of those, uh, those very intense um, conflicts in, in, the, in the work environment. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Uh, so in Pakistani culture, like there was recently, I was in a situation where someone invited uh, someone else and they couldn't, they couldn't uh, accept the invitation. But instead of saying no directly, they actually said no through an intermediary just to like uh, 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 make it more graceful or, so or, or soften it a little bit. And I thought that was like really interesting because in the American context, like you would just say no upfront, right? Or like decline. Um, and, and, and I, and I, I see that quite a bit in, in a lot of situations. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think that this can, um, this can really also help improve just interpersonal relationships, right? And avoid some of the unnecessary misunderstanding. Um, so I think that we can all, I think, you know, we can all use more inter intermediary uh, 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 person in the organization or actually play that role sometimes. Mm. And then, or sometimes you may even be the person that to bring two parties together and then just talk it through the situation. But this is a skill set that the leaders can develop. Yeah to really help um, other, other people that sometimes the team members or cross-functional team uh, uh, peers to work better together. Yeah, and, and let's, let's dig into this a little bit. So say you're in a, in a, in a situation, maybe it's a cross-cultural situation, and you, you maybe get a signal that something is off, right? You mentioned a few signals that, you know, sometimes silence on the other end can demonstrate something is off. And you think you said, okay, like maybe I should enlist the help of an intermediary. How would you go about doing that? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, I, um, I will say my immediate answer is that to start thinking about um, if the other person, if it is important, if it's appropriate to go to that person directly, how, what is your relationship with the other person? Right. So in the, let's go back to the Steve and Kenji's case. Okay. So if Steve realized that Kenji stopped talking to him after that conversation and he seemed distant or aloof or maybe he's disengaged, um, then Steve may want to start thinking about what is my relationship? How well do I know Kenji? Right. Would it be OK if I go directly to him and talk to him about the situation? And if they don't have a very close relationship and also he has no idea what was going on, then he might actually ask or find a cultural informant. It could be a colleague that can't you trust and respect and also under, can uh, understand both US and Japanese cultural and uh, to ask this colleague 
to find out a little bit more about what's going on. Is it something wrong with, um, you know, something happened in his personal life or something that uh, maybe is a misunderstanding. So find a cultural informant can be very helpful. Um, if Steve has a fairly good relationship with Kenji already, and then he may want to go straight to Kukenji. So I would say the first step is to evaluate your relationship with the other person. And then if you feel like it's okay to go straight to the person and then approach it with respect and also always assume positive intent of the other person. And I think that, you know, it will be okay to go straight to that person. And if you, if you have any doubt, find somebody else to help you maybe in decode that kind of uh, situation. Um, that could also be very helpful. And so let's say Steve evaluates the relationship and says, okay, actually I'm not that close to Kenji. I should reach out to someone. If you're the person who someone like Steve has reached out to for, inter, uh, in, for being an intermediary, you know, what should you do? What makes a good intermediary? I think that um, number one is that this person, this, this person should maintain neutral, not taking sides, okay? And uh, um, so understand both sides of the story, what happened, and then to, so you know, number one is that to maintain neutral. Number two is that to be able to listen well on both sides and understand what's really happening. And number three is to be able to find a solution that, that, that will actually ultimately produce a positive outcome for both sides. So being an intermediary is someone that, uh, it, it's an important task because you have the trust from both parties. So you should take it seriously and then always looking for the greater good. And in this case, in the example, you know, when it was covered that the word no brainer was the issue, then would, it, would, would the intermediary, you know, both explain to Kenji, hey, this is what it actually means. And then also explain to Steve, like, this is like how it was perceived. Like, would that be a kind of way that it would be resolved? Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, you can explain that to both sides, right? Once you realize what happened. Um, and, um, and then sometimes a situation like this, you know, it, it, you can, things, you know, both sides understand, then things will get resolved um, by itself, right? Through the kind of explanation. But sometimes the situation can be much more complicated. And this may involve different priorities or some kind of um, long-term um, conflict that, or, you know, uh, that those two people have. So being an intermediary is someone that really needs to have a, a, a very good skill set to be able to go, go between. And uh, so sometimes it's not just the, the task at hand, but also different personalities, okay? And then to be realistic about this is what, you this, you can do what you can do, but then a lot of the situation, the, the time that it's probably beyond your control. Okay, um, so that to be able to be a real good intermediary, this require um, some skill training. Yeah. <laughs> do you have an example of either someone you work with or a situation you know where you saw it done really well? My gosh, I was thinking about it. I can't think of anything on top of my head. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> that's okay. 
well, let me know if you, if something comes to mind. Um, yes. And I, I was wondering, you know, in terms of there's a, on on the on surface, there's a little bit of I think tension between being honest, but then and and like giving feedback where it's needed, but then also you know saving face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you balance those two things? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so Asal, when I work with leaders in the organizations that when we talk about building psychological safety and to create an environment that, um, that people feel safe to, um, to speak up and uh, I'm not afraid of uh, being punished and uh, being able to feel, feel comfortable and to, to take risk at work. And they, um, and then it's so important for, for leaders to create that kind of psychological safety in the workplace. And so people can feel free to, um, to be themselves. And then often that leader would challenge you and said, well, that's all nice, right? But then what if everybody's so comfortable and, and uh, there's no accountability, right? And we're so busy saving face for them that you know, what happened to performance? We're here to work. We're here to, to uh, you know, to run a business. Mm-hmm. And so this is a very, very important point to clarify is that you cannot have psychological safety without accountability. You have to have both, okay? And those two things have to be balanced. In fact, there is a, um, a research that was done there uh, by, uh, uh, by Professor at, um Amy Edmondson from uh, Harvard Business School. And she's the expert in this particular area about psychological safety. And then she analyzed those two factors, psychological safety versus accountability. And um, she divided a two by two chart that um, if you can just imagine one X is, is the psychological safety and the other one is accountability. And then so when you have low accountability and uh, high psychological safety. And they, she called that comfort zone. So people get so comfortable that because they can, you know, they're not being, gonna be held accountable and then they, they're, you know, uh, in their work. So, but then they feel very safe to do whatever they wanna do and then to show up as who they are. And so they call that comfort zone. When people in the comfort zone too much that they, they tend to, this performance suffers because then there was no accountability. If they don't perform, nothing happens. So that's certainly not an ideal situation. Now, um, another, uh, if what happened if you, you have a very high accountability, but very low psychological safety, meaning that people are being held accountable for, for what they do, but then they also feel not, they don't feel safe. Um, you know, if, if they make a mistake, they're punished and if they meet, don't meet deadlines, you know, they, they, they will be humiliated. So then if you have high accountability, but then very low psychological safety, she called that anxiety zone. So are people always in this very high anxiety state of mind and being at, at, at work? And this can cause burned out. This can cause you losing good talents because they, they don't feel there was much empathy or understanding in the workplace. And 
what happens if you have both psychological safety and accountability, both are very low? Then she called it apathy zone. People just don't care, right? And that's certainly the worst situation. And well, then the ideal situation is that the psychological safety is high, accountability also high. So this is the zone that she called learning zone. When you're in this zone that people feel safe to try different things, to challenge status quo, to speak up, to share their ideas and to take a risk and to innovate. But at the same time, they're being held accountable for their actions and their performance. So people will learn and grow because of they are, they're being held accountable at the same time they feel very safe um, in their work environment. So that's where we wanted to be. So going back to your question, right, um, is that how do you balance being honest while saving face? You can do you can you can do you can have a high psychological safety and also high accountability. Um, I have a perfect story for you on this. I was going to ask you if you had an example. That's great. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So this is actually one of my favorite stories. I, I share that often with my clients. So let's just call this leader Jeff. Okay. So Jeff was the finance director of a company. And Jeff was facing a big crisis. Um, under his watch, he, uh, a frontline employee had stolen over $100,000 in an eight-month period. As a finance director, Jeff had designed and deployed the entire cash flow process that allowed this employee to commit the fraud undetected. So it was a high profile case. It was discussed not only in the security meetings, but also spread quickly throughout the whole company. And while the theft was revealed and the scope of it ballooned with each day of the investigation, Jeff felt entirely responsible and personally victimized. Okay. It was an example of losing face big time. Can, so, I, can, I, ask, can I ask you a clarification question? Yes. Here? So it sounds like an employee stole $100,000 in eight month period. And Jeff as a financial director created the model that allowed this employee to steal all this money. And Correct. he was feeling like a little victimized and a little like, He's feeling guilty of, of, of this. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because the, the, there is a gap in the process yeah. to allow this employee to steal money without being, nobody, uh, without being uh, 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 detected. So then very soon, the COO of the company planned a meeting with Jeff and his team. And this stress consumed Jeff. He lost weight. He couldn't sleep for days. And then he developed this terrible rash all over his face. So for days that Jeff just felt like a dead man walking. And when the day finally arrived, the team waited nervously in a conference room and the COO walked in. He actually flew in from Germany just for this meeting. So Jeff's, yeah. So Jeff's drag and anxiety were impossible to ignore. So the COO broke the tension with just one sentence. He said, I don't care about the theft. And he continued to say that theft is unavoidable. Whether you run a hot dog stand or a multinational company, the company was insured and would be made whole. 
And the COO said, I only want to know that you plan to review the process and fix it. And you seem well on your way from what I can see. Jeff's demeanor immediately brightened. And for the rest of the meeting, he and his team focused on problem solving and he returned to his job with renewed energy. The COO had saved his face. Okay, so how did the COO do it? Okay, let's kind of analyze this. Yeah. Three things. Number one, he created psychological safety while holding Jeff accountable. So that's the learning zone, right? Psychological safety was high. Accountability was also high. He didn't let him off the hook. Number two, he was kind and firm at the same time. He chose his words carefully and he showed humility and emotional intelligence when dealing with the emotionally delicate situation. Number three is that he helped Jeff overcome shame and embarrassment quickly and refocus his energy on solving the problem and moving forward. He sent a clear message to Jeff and his team, I trust you. I have confidence in you to do the right thing. And that is saving face. Yeah. This is great. Can I ask you a few follow-up questions on this? Yes. I think, it's, uh, I think it's really like hones in the concept for a lot of people listening. Um, I, I want to point out that in terms of saving face, there are, I think there are a couple of layers. One is like Jeff feels like he's on the hook, but then also it's a team meeting. So there's a social aspect to it where Yes. Jeff, Jeff could be humiliated, but he could also be humiliated in front of his team, right? So there are perhaps two layers to this. And then I want to I wanna ask you, so the CEO created psychological safety and accountability. When you say, so the psychological safety, is that when he said, look, theft is unavoidable, uh, like having that hot dog stand or, so it went from like, almost like impersonalizing the mistake, like, you know, mistakes just happen regardless of where you are. Is that the psychological safety piece, if we were to analyze it? Well, so, so the psychological safety piece is that I, uh, yeah, it, this, he said that the context that this kind of mistake can happen to anyone, okay? But then I trust that you are doing the right thing because hmm. I can see that you're working on it, you're fixing it, and uh, you're, you're well on your way. So he's sending a positive message that I trust you. I know that you will do the right thing, even though this mistake happened, but you're responsible to fix this and you are doing it, right? So he acknowledged that there is a mistake, but then he also acknowledged that we, we're gonna be okay, but I need you to pick up the, you know, uh, pick up those pieces and then fix the problem. And, um, and I can see that you're, you're heading the right direction. And then the accountability piece is like, okay, I want to know the plan for like how you tend to review the process yeah. and fix it, right? Okay. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, yeah, the, and then in terms of overcoming shame and embarrassment, does that go back to like this idea of like mistakes happen? It's not you, like, you know, like uh, this could have happened to any company or a hot dog stand. Is that, is that the, that part where? Yeah, Absolutely. So it's, it's something that when we think about shame and embarrassment is that he, he, you know, Jeff felt completely victimized and personally responsible. Everybody knows about it. And so he, he felt he lost his, uh, 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 credibility, not just with his team, but also with 
other peers and also the, the everybody in the, in the in the organization heard about it. But then in this case is that, you know what, this kind of thing happened, mistake happens. So he kind of, the COO um, didn't minimal, minimize it, but he actually make it sounds like, you know, this has happened, let's move beyond this. Yeah. Let's focus on the future, not in the past. And the mistake happens regardless what kind of organization you're, you're you know, what, what business you're running, whether it's a hot dog stand or a multi-million dollar company. And let's, let's move forward. Let's focus on the future. Yeah. Okay? And I think that is a really important learning here. It's not about blaming, pointing fingers. He never said one thing about it's all your fault. How could you do something like that? But rather it's like this kind of thing could happen and, but that's move forward and find a solution and fix it. I know I had you on the hook till 3.15. Do you have time to go over or do you, or? I have a few more minutes, yes. Okay, great. Uh, they're really enjoying this conversation so far. Um, <laughs> there maybe a couple of things I wanted to touch base on because I think it'd be super like interesting for listeners. Um, you work with a lot of uh, American or Western businesses that have a presence in East Asia. What are some biggest some of the biggest examples of cultural clashes that you've seen in your work? Yeah. Wow. Gosh, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just with Asia, but it's also, it's just really cross-cultural mm -hmm. and uh, it could be just diversity, right? But just different human differences. But, um, but I think, let me, let's focus a little bit about uh, Asia, because I think that there is uh, some very specific uh, uh, examples that I can, I can draw on. So, you know, we have um, um, all heard of this term, ugly Americans. Right, and uh, sometimes you just picture that. What does that look like? What does it mean? And uh, you know, it's someone that uh, perhaps is really um, arrogant or brash or um, with a U.S. centric belief, and that uh, we're the best. And uh, so, so when uh, when you have when you're a leader that you have this kind of persona or mindset or attitude, and then you work in in other countries, in other cultures, like in Asia, for example, that they would, um, um, you know, only wanted to, I have actually worked with the leader. He said, when I travel to China, I just tell people, don't bother sir, taking me to any Chinese restaurant. I just want to go to McDonald's and eat a Big Mac every day until I go home. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, sometimes they, they just simply are not interested in learning about the local culture or um, or, or connect with uh, with the local people, and uh, so the, those are some of the things that, like I talked about earlier, they tend to operate on this autopilot, and then also assume that um, they are going to operate this essentially the same way that um, they operate back home here in the U.S. So there's definitely some cultural clashes. And uh, let me give you some examples and things that I think we can um, uh, we can all learn to uh, to uh, to avoid being an ugly American. One first one is it's about communication, okay. And um, one of the uh, uh, the thing common complaint that I've heard from non-American um, employees or or leaders about American leaders is that they say American tendencies sometimes we like to interrupt people okay and they 
they don't let people finish what they're saying. They cut them off. Or they, um, they, they assume that they already know the answer. So then they, they, they stop listening. And sometimes the, they use too much acronyms or jargons. And, the, the, uh, and sometimes that uh, the way they, they sometimes fail to say exactly what they mean. For example, they, they use uh, sarcastic comments like, oh, that's just great. This can come off as, um, you know, um, sincere, uh, but you know, to someone unfamiliar with American culture or idioms, they may actually believe you and say, oh, really, you think it's great? But you're really actually saying the opposite, right? Um, or the non-native English speakers can also really struggle to interpret some of the vague answers like, um, oh, I can't say, or I'm not sure. Um, and they don't particularly like being asked, do you understand? Um, because it feels condescending. So for example, uh, you know, a native speakers going, speaking to a non-native speakers and then and if the other person doesn't respond or didn't say much or remain silent, they would keep asking, do you understand? Do you understand? And this can come across as quite uh, offensive, right? So number one is to just avoid some of the irritating or, or uh, phrases or communication style that can, can offend the other person. Now, um, secondly is to, um, to respect the hierarchy. Okay, and um, so U.S. cultural, we tend to, Americans tend to be more informal, and uh, we, um, we also tend to be more like um, egalitarian. So it's a badge of honor, you know, for a CEO to, um, to, to say that, hey, you know, I'm, I, uh, uh, or a politician to seem like a regular guy. But in, um, in many Asian cultures, that business in, is much more hierarchical. So, you know, everything matters. Your degrees, your, your titles, and uh, your age, seniority, gender, um, family background, um, you know, if you name it, so many different factors can determine the, 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 the hierarchy in the organization and where you're at in that, in that hierarchy. So, um, I think that it's very important to learn that hierarchy of the culture that you interact with and then really respect that hierarchy. So address people, you know, by their title, for example, or um, uh, in a meeting situation that um, ask a question to the most senior person rather than ask their, their, their subordinate to, to respond. Things like that, just to be more aware and more sensitive and really respect that hierarchy can really help you um, uh, uh, have a better understanding of, uh, have a better relationship with the people you work with. And um, uh, another advice I have is, it's another metaphor. You know, I like metaphors. <laughs> so we talk about get off the autopilot, right? Now, here's the thing is that raise your um, human antenna. Okay, so what I mean by that is, that, you know, um, do you remember in the old days that we have uh, those old-fashioned radios, mm -hmm. right? That you, ha you have to physically actually raise that antenna in order to hear the music or, or yep. the thing. Now, what happens when the antenna is down? You, there's some stations you can't access or it's like very 
like blurry or like you hear a lot of static, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't hear much, right? Or a lot of static. You couldn't hear clearly about what, what they're saying on the radio. But then if you start to raise the antenna and uh, then very quickly that you will have a much better reception. You get all the signals from all three, 360 degrees and then you can clearly hear the music or what people are saying. So same thing here that when we interact with people from a different culture, that it really requires preparation and being more intentional. So raise that human antenna, meaning that you read as much as you can about the other cultural and really pay attention and watch and listen to the different signals and the verbal and nonverbal cues um, and then to truly understand what's going on before you jump in and say something or, or, or take actions. Um, the Chinese character of the word listen is actually, it's a, it's a complicated word that consists of one ear, 10 eyes, and one heart. You put those parts okay. together, that's the word listen. Okay, so what that means is that if you truly, truly listen, you, you need one ear, one heart, and then 10 eyes. You have to really observe and pay attention and listen with your heart, not just with your ears. And is the idea there behind, like just to your point about nonverbal communication, like we look at body language or things that are just outside of the audio. Is that is that the... Yes, exactly. Don't just, okay. don't just listen to the words people are saying, right? And uh, really be um, paying attention, be present, and listen to all the nonverbal cues as well. Yeah, great. Um, my final question is, you know, sometimes you're in a situation where, you know, maybe as a salesperson, you have to make a concession and you kind of feel like you're losing face yourself in, a, in an interaction. So what are some strategies to save your own face? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, um, I think that, this is something that a lot of times that people do naturally is that, you know, you want to save face for yourself. And um, um, it's it, the, the most effective way of um, saving your own face, but at the same time that come across as genuine and also um, 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 someone that is, you still can maintain your credibility and non-defensive is that you learn to use some of the indirect communication style, okay? So um, if you don't know something that instead of saying, I don't know, or try to make up some answers, you simply say, you can say, you know, I'll get back to you. If you actually communicate with the indirect cultural, okay? Then they will understand that you probably don't have those information in hand. So then you say, I will get back to you. And then you really do follow through and get back to them. Okay. So that's one way of saving face without saying, oh, I have no idea. I don't know. Okay. And then say, I will get back to you. And then if you, for example, another situation, if you disagree with someone. Okay. And um, um, instead of saying, I disagree, this can cause the other person and yourself to both lose face um, by directly confronting them. You can, again, apply some of the indirect communication technique by using either silence or you can say, um, let me think about it. 
right? And uh, so be able to utilize some of this technique, especially when you work with people from a different cultural backgrounds, that they will understand where you're coming from. And um, um, now be humble. Right. Uh, don't don't be defensive and think that people and, and don't try to cover up something that if you actually have done something wrong. And, you know, in fact, in the in the more you try to cover up or be defensive, the more you lose credibility. And you're not saving yourself face, but rather people just going to perceive you as being phony or defensive and, and not authentic. I think that's a really proper working way to end our conversation because I think in American culture, you're trained to be more direct and you're actually say, like, you know, saying the opposite. So uh, I think that, that's great. That's a lot of food for thought for our listeners to, to uh, marry it on. Uh, my, such a great conversation. Where can people find you and learn a little bit more about your work? What's oh, easy, you can um, either go to my website, and, and my website is uh, my name, www.mayahuchan.com, and that's M-A-Y-A-H-U-C-H-A-N.com, um, or connect me on LinkedIn. And Great. so I would love to hear from you. And may I also have a, um, a parting uh, uh, comment? to kind of wrap up our conversation is that, you know, um, we all have heard about this uh, golden rule, right? The golden rule is that treat others as you would like to be treated. But when it comes to saving face, honoring face and avoid causing people to lose face, that I'd like to suggest a platinum rule. And the platinum rule is that only one word difference than the golden rule. So the final rule is that treat others as they would like to be treated.